Welcome to the Bare Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com. And every Thursday, we like to give you evidence-based, healthy, biblical advice about marriage. And I am joined today by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. And we are in the middle of our Doing Marriage on Hard Mode series. Yes, we are. Or rather, we started it last week on yes, the podcast. we've been talking about it ourselves for quite a while, so it feels to us like we're in the middle of it. <laughs> but we planned this series a long time ago. We wanted to do it in September because that's when things start up again. And it's yeah. a great time to reevaluate your priorities and your time and what you're doing with your life, et cetera, et cetera. We started last week by asking if talking about marriage as being hard actually makes marriage hard. Mm-hmm. If it can be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy or cause you to miss red flags. Right. And today we want to talk about another way of looking at marriage that might give us a happier picture. Yeah. If marriage isn't hard, what does it look like? Yeah. But before we do that, okay, a couple of important announcements. First of all, we love the fact that you guys listen to this podcast. Seriously, we are blown away by how many downloads we're getting every week ever yes. since the Great Sex Rescue launched. We're uh, we're, we're probably going to get to a million downloads by the end of the year. Hopefully. Which is, or pretty darn close. Yes. So keep downloading. Please. Let's get those download numbers up. Um, tell other people about the Bear Marriage Podcast. Leave a review. It helps us so much. But even though you listen to the podcast, please know that there is so much more content elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I write on the blog at lovehonoredvacuum.com every day. We've been talking about marriage on Hardwood. We have so much to share this month on the blog. So check that out. And the easiest way to do that is to join our email list. There's a link in the podcast notes that go along with this in the podcast post on the blog where you can join our email list. And when you do, we're going to be giving away another copy of your choice, either the orgasm course or our puberty course for kids. So Someone who joins this week and someone who joined up beforehand. And yeah. we can't announce last week's winners because we're filming this at a weird time. So, yes, because yes. uh, we're trying to get rid of ready for vacation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we will try to announce those in the newsletter. So please do that because when you sign up to the email list, you'll get sent a list of the posts and then you can choose which ones you want to read. In addition, remember that we do have a Patreon where you can help support us. And we are so grateful to the new patrons that we have this week. So many new patrons last month. Yeah, yeah. really exciting. Um, and that money does not fund this podcast. What it funds is getting our research out there, both in peer reviewed journals and in other social media channels that are harder to monetize so that other people can hear about a way to do marriage in a healthy way with the Christian framework with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's keep the Christian Jesus focused approach, but let's also make sure that we're doing things in a healthy way. And we're not going off track. So exactly. with that in mind, here we go. Marriage as someone who is equally yoked. Yes. And this is your idea, so I'm going to let you explain it. This is my idea. This is what I Seriously, I just need to say, most most of the good ideas really are Becca's. Like, the good analogies. I always say, if you read The Great Sex Rescue, I think I had two of the funny lines in there, but the rest were Becca's, especially the white stag, which actually made your dad laugh out loud. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Yeah, Um, but anyway, go ahead. No, what I was... when When you're looking at the whole marriage is hard mentality, the thing that always rubbed me the wrong way is that my marriage, you know... Life is hard, Mm -hmm. but life is easier because of my marriage. Okay. So like, for instance, I have a kid. The kid wakes up at three in the morning Mm -hmm. every now and then. He's going through the two-year-old sleep regression right now. It just happens. Right. You know? And if I didn't have a spouse with me Mm -hmm. who was my partner, Mm -hmm. I would be the one getting up every single time. Mm -hmm. to go and get him. Mm -hmm. But because I have a partner who is equally yoked with me, who Mm -hmm. we work together, we Mm -hmm. each together can do more as a couple than either of us could do on our own, 
I get to not have to do that every single time. <laughs> you know, like I can trust that my mm-hmm. husband also sees these things as his responsibility, mm-hmm. that we're a team in this, that right. parenting is always going to be hard, but it's a heck of a lot easier because I have a partner who's doing it with me. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. It's, it's this whole idea of in Christian community, we're supposed to help carry each other's burdens. Yes. You know, we each still carry our own load. Like we each still take care of what is ours to take care of, mm-hmm. but we can be in community that carries each other's burden. So that the mm-hmm. load is lighter overall. And that's what marriage should be. And then when mm-hmm. we say that marriage makes life easier, that's what we mean. Yes. We don't mean that suddenly if you're married, life is easy. No, <laughs> no. And it doesn't mean that you never get in conflict. It doesn't mean that past stuff doesn't come up. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you suddenly don't have to deal with the fact that you married a human being who has flaws. Right. But it means that overall, we have that picture of the oxen who are sharing a yoke where mm-hmm. they're going towards the same place. Together, they're able to do more than either of them will be able to on their own. Mm-hmm. And it's easier work if both of them are doing it together than the amount of work either of them would have had if they had to plow by themselves. Right. And that's that's the thing. Is often when we talk about that verse, what is it, 2 Corinthians 6.14, I think? Is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? Is it first, I'm going to look it up. I don't know. <laughs> Second Corinthians, I was right. You were right, I was wrong. Okay, usually it's the opposite. So Second Corinthians 6.14 tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Yeah, and so that's, that's where we often talk about when we talk about equally yoked, as it means you have to marry a Christian. And that's the main thing that people tell us. You know, you need to marry a Christian as if once you marry a Christian, everything is necessarily okay. Yeah. What we want to say is that it needs to go a step further than that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's not, if you want, if you want an equally yoked marriage, it's not just about marrying a Christian. It's about actually being equally yoked. Exactly. <laughs> which is, which you can get also from um, this verse, which is read at a lot of marriage, a lot of weddings. Yeah, this there's a passage in Ecclesiastes four, which we actually read at our wedding. So Ecclesiastes four nine to twelve. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's a couple verses. Here we go. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Yeah. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Yeah, and 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 I want to be clear. Uh, they're not. This is not an anti-single person passage mm-hmm. either. If you're single, there are other ways to have community yes. and people with you. But when you're in a marriage where you know you're able to work together, it just is easier. Mm-hmm. It just is easier. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes in a marriage, you're not equally yoked. Yeah. Sometimes in a marriage, you do not. You're not actually working together. Yeah. You know, one of you is carrying more of the weight. One of you is really struggling and the other one is just doing their own thing. I don't know. That's why I like the whole mental picture of the oxen because they're literally joined together at the neck. Like they are going the same direction. If one of them falls down, it it affects the other. Yeah. And that's the thing is like if one of you is hurting, it should affect the other person. Yeah. If one of you is in pain in some way, whether it's an emotional pain or you're exhausted or you're overwhelmed, that should affect the other person. So this is what you need to make sure that you're both wearing the yoke. <laughs> yeah. That you're keeping yourselves close together so that you are going in the same direction, so that you are working together. And that means, you know, making your marriage a priority, doing all the things that that work for better communication. All of those things that we normally hear about in terms of growing marriages. Yeah, but it also means that you don't let your spouse leave you in the dust. Yeah. That's like, the big one. Because I'm sorry, I, like we see this so often in marriages. And I know this is going to sound unfair, but mm-hmm. statistics show mm-hmm. this is the case. It is more likely the woman is left in the dust. 
Mm-hmm. It is more likely that she's the one who's struggling to keep up and that she's carrying more of the load, that she's yep. struggling and feeling unseen and he's just kind of not caring. Yeah. So we're not saying it can't happen in no. way. It's just most usually it's it's the one way. Yeah. Yeah. And it usually has to do with child care, with house care, with just in general, the whole idea of this mental load that we talk mm-hmm. about a lot. We know that studies show that men do more housework before they are married than after on average, and mm-hmm. women do more housework after they are married than before. Mm-hmm. That means you are not equally yoked. Mm-hmm. Those studies show that um, wet, uh, with two full-time working spouses. Yeah. So yeah. we're not talking about she becomes a stay-at-home mom, and it's like that ma- that makes sense. Yes. But it's talking about in a, in a shared income household, like where mm-hmm. both of them are contributing to the, to the income, still we see this dynamic. And so we need to be careful Mm-hmm. Like if you're in a marriage and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're just struggling and you feel like you're in essence doing it alone, even though you have this partner, that's not what we mean when people say, well, marriage is hard. Yeah. That's not normal. And when we say marriage should be easy. Or it might be normal, but it shouldn't it's be It's not normal. healthy. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. it might be normal that all of us watch eight hours of YouTube a day or whatever <laughs> at this point. It's not healthy. Yeah. Um, no, but like... <laughs> That's the thing. When we say that marriage should be easy, marriage should make your life better, what we're saying is you shouldn't feel like you're drowning. You should have a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? and if you don't have a partner, if you really are doing things alone, then that's a sign that there is something in your marriage that needs that needs to be fixed. Yeah. You know, your husband said something when we were talking about this that was really smart. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. He was just, he was laughing about how many guys complain about how, you know, the baby's four months old and, you know, they're still not getting enough sex. And it's just all she wants to do is take care of the kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's not making him a priority. And Connor just said, listen, if at like four months, a guy is worrying about how much sex he's not getting, he's likely not doing enough with the baby. Because yeah, your <laughs> husband was so exhausted. Connor was so tired because he took on so much stuff with Alex. Yeah, because you had complications after this. Yeah, exactly. Too, so. But but that's yeah. the thing, though. It's like if both of you, if your kid's going through a sleep regression and she's exhausted and breastfeeding and also like taking care of the baby all day mm-hmm. while you're at work, yeah. it's like then... Put in your, your time. <laughs> yeah. And equally yoked does not mean that you necessarily have to be doing the same things. In fact, no. studies have shown one of the benefits of marriage is specialization. And yes. that each person can do what they're best at. So, you know, one person might be better at doing the finances. And so they get to do the finances for both of you. And the person who isn't good at doing finances no longer has to do the finances. Exactly. Which is wonderful. But it leaves <laughs> them know? free to do the things like, you know, maybe they do all of the meal planning and meal prepping. Yeah. And... Yeah. So specialization is great. So we're not saying that everybody has to do 50% of everything. No. We're not even saying, I, I think 50, when, when people start measuring 50%, it doesn't, it doesn't work very well. Anyway, no. what, um, I love what Eve Rodsky said in Fair Play, which, which um, I've put in the series on, on mental load and emotional labor, is that it's not so much about making sure everyone's doing 50% of the work. It's making sure that everyone has equal downtime. Yes. And making sure that everyone has time to themselves. And that's really key. Like last weekend, your husband had a friend down. Yeah, for the weekend for the first time oh, since yeah. COVID. It was so great. Yeah, yeah. we got to have actually a, a legit like visit with a friend for the first time since COVID started. And uh, so this is like, yeah, Connor had his 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 friend down. And so I gave them like the whole weekend off. 
pretty mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. I took care of the baby. And, and I am seven months pregnant to anyone who is not <laughs> seeing this on YouTube. And I am very tired. <laughs> but, you know, I did. And, and to be fair, the friend we had down is like very helpful. And he made a lot of meals for us and stuff because mm-hmm. he's an awesome cook. Yeah. Um, but I did like all of the dishwasher and all of the cleaning and all of the mm-hmm. everything. And I took care of the kid a hundred percent of the time pretty much. And I did all the bedtime routines and all the bath time because I wanted to give Connor a break to mm-hmm. see a friend. And then, you know, today when I'm exhausted <laughs> from that whole weekend, when the baby woke up at seven in the morning, Connor just got up without a word and let me sleep in for like over an hour. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's kind of how it all works out. And then when I have a friend over at some point, he's going to take care of everything. And that's, that's what marriage should be. So how do you get marriage to that point? And I think one of the big things is that you need to marry someone who's a good character. Yeah. Um, and that's easy to say if you're still single and we'll have a, but it also is. And I know that people don't like that answer, but we need to say that to the singles. Mm -hmm. You do get to choose who you marry. Mm -hmm. Marrying the right person makes such a big difference. Yes. It really does. You know, like Connor and I had a lot of similar problems to a lot of couples at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but I never, but it was never a big issue because both of us were Mm -hmm. good people who wanted the other person, like wanted the best for each other. Yeah. And so like, yeah, all this stuff with mental load and childcare and stuff like that. Well, first of all, there were never any issues with childcare. Yeah. Um, But with, with mental load stuff at the very beginning of our marriage, it wasn't, like a death sentence to me like I didn't feel like this is never going to get better because my husband got it and even though it took time that's the difference yeah now another big tip is as early in your marriage as possible get this right yes because I think what a lot of people do is they don't bring up things in the first year of marriage Mm -hmm. because they figure it they figure well this is just our normal adjustment and I want to show him love and we're still working things out and but actually (laughs) make it an issue Really, really, really early because if you can stop yourself from getting into bad habits, habits are very, very hard to break. So if in the first year of your marriage, you can start your marriage going in the direction that you want it to go long term, that is so much better. So for those of you who are listening who are still early in your marriage, make a big issue about mental load, emotional labor, about making sure we each have downtime, making sure that we each care about each other. Make that early in your marriage. Oh, yeah, I was making things an issue with three months in. So yeah. was Connor. Connor yeah. was bringing stuff up three months in too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was a psychology student, right? And I do remember, I don't remember exactly the numbers. So if someone has the study, but I do know that there's a lot of studies that have shown that the first, I believe it's the first two to three years of your relationship entirely, not mm-hmm. marriage, but like when you start dating and mm-hmm. onwards. Um, the first two to three years of your relationship set the stage for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to change things in those first two to three years. And after that, it becomes statistically less and less likely to actually change, mm-hmm. even if you try. So like, that's because it's harder to get ourselves out of something if we're more ingrained in it. That's right. Right. So so get those things early. And then even if it's even if you are have been married for 10, 12, 15 yeah. years, still bring things up because Do. Yeah. it... it, it it's going to be harder, but do the work now, and at least the next few decades will be better. The other thing that equally yoked means is is it's not just that you feel it when someone else is weak, yes. but it's also you're going in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of couples have problems with because often they're going in very different directions, yep. especially when it comes to like goals. You know, do we want to buy a house now? What kind of careers do we want? Where do we want to live? How many activities are the kids going to be in? <laughs> 
you know, these lifestyle things actually have a tremendous amount of effect on how hard marriage is. Yeah. What kind of spending do we want to be able to do? What kinds of Mm -hmm. things do we want to be spending our time and our money on? Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things we get into almost like, you know, you're in an airport and there's that moving sidewalk and it's not even like you made a decision off it. (laughs) It's just that somehow you got on it and now you don't know how to get off. Yeah, That often happens with debt. It can happen with what kind of house we we buy. You know, one of the things we're going to be talking about later in the series on the blog is how sometimes downsizing can be worth it. We don't think enough about the value of small life. (laughs) Um, I read one study that showed that sibling relationships are inversely proportional to, or the quality of sibling relationships is inversely proportional to the size of your house. Yes. The bigger the house, the less close the siblings. Yeah. Like, and, and now obviously that there's, there's a rate of diminishing returns and And that can actually go negative if the house gets too, too small (laughs) and everyone's on top of each other. But if you think about those post-war homes, um, you know, in the 1950s, they average of a thousand square feet and you yeah. brought up four kids in them with bunk beds and two, you know, three, three bedrooms, two very small bunk beds in each. And everyone just hang out, hung out in the family room or the basement yeah. or more likely outside. outside and kids learned how to play with each other. Yeah. Um, as opposed to retreating to their own individual rooms with their own screens every night. So there can be there can be benefits to living even in an apartment mm-hmm. for an extended period of time. It's not the most fun thing in the world. I know I did apartments for a long time <laughs> with, yeah. with two babies. <laughs> um, you did apartments with one baby. Yeah. Only um, for a few months though. So Yeah, it can't it can't be difficult, but sometimes doing that instead of taking on a huge debt with a house really early can allow you guys to stay going in the same direction mm-hmm. you know and just give you some breathing room so that you can you can uh, save more money for a down payment so you have more breathing room once you do get that house or for a lot of people it's just moving to a cheaper town I know when we left Toronto life was so much cheaper <laughs> and often the things that we want in life just can't happen in really expensive of places and the more we try the more depressed we get yeah and that's why when we're talking about this whole equally yoked thing it it, it comes to both you know are both of you carrying the load Mm -hmm. are both of you helping each other carry the load are both of you shouldering it but also are you both pointing the same direction Mm -hmm. and if you have both of those life might still kind of be crappy sometimes Yep. Life might still be hard. You don't suddenly get healed from, you know, mental health issues. You don't suddenly not have family members get sick. You don't suddenly have a non-stressful life. But at least you have a partner going through it with you so that the load feels lighter and it's not all on your shoulders. And that should be the gift of marriage. And that should be what we are telling people marriage is. Mm -hmm. Because if we continuously put it up as this hard battle of the wills or you're constantly just trying your best and the only thing you can really hope for is that you each sacrifice enough that you don't get divorced. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes 4. No, and remember, Jesus said that he came to give us life and give it abundantly. So he does want us to thrive. Um, Just as we're ending up this segment, I want to read something that came into the blog about the book Love and Respect, which I think affects this or relates to this a little bit and the idea of being equally yoked. So she was saying that when they originally, and I'll, I'll just summarize the the bit of it, uh, the first bit. She was saying when they originally read the book, they thought it was really helpful. Yeah. And it gave them a helpful way of communicating and talking about things. But then she says this, 
Last week, as we were unpacking things, we realized that it was very unfair of us to assume that if I was upset, it was because he said something unloving to me, and that if he was upset, I should assume I said something disrespectful to him. So while we thought it was initially helpful, we are now seeing that it actually pits us against each other. What if one of us just had a bad day or are feeling stressed? So I have found that I will often ask, did I do something wrong or are you upset with me when he just had a hard human day at work? Were we unnecessarily putting ourselves in the crazy cycle? (laughs) You know, and so that's an example of how the way that we see marriage can actually pit us against each other and make us unequally yoked. Yeah, exactly. Where it's not about both of us together for a common goal. It's Mm -hmm. how have they offended me? How have I failed? Versus Mm -hmm. just life. Life. Life can sometimes be rough. And sometimes you're the cause of life being rough. Yes, sometimes you are. And we need to be honest about that. And your spouse (laughs) needs to be able to bring that up. But sometimes life is just rough. And that's where having someone to walk alongside you and to lift you up helps. And in our new research segment, we have some new research to share. There's been a whole bunch of stuff written lately about brain health and about as we age, keeping our memory. My father passed away of Alzheimer's. So this is something that's very much on our minds. How do you keep your brain healthy because no nobody wants to go through dementia and um there was a great article that i read that summarized a lot of all all kinds of different studies i will link it in the podcast notes um so some of the things it's saying is that a lot of the supplements that we think help brain health actually don't but a lot of the activities that we think help actually do like gardening yeah. knitting does <laughs> yes <laughs> i've seen that <laughs> you know and things like that really help but the biggest thing that helps is connectedness um mm. and i think that that was based on that long-term harvard study that we looked at the longitudinal study where they 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 followed people over i think it was like six or seven decades it was i amazing. think it was 60 years it was yeah. 60 years and and looking at what contributed to early death and what contributed to dementia and having those key connectedness feeling really really connected with people mm-hmm. helped ward off dementia and so let's really work on the quality of our relationships let's really be equally yoked let's let's see those marriages thrive because it helps us in the long term too of course sometimes though you do have issues in your marriage that you can't get over and that's where it's important to actually work on those issues so that you can resolve them and so we have a guest that we want to bring on the podcast right now I am thrilled to have licensed counselor Micah Morgan join us on the podcast today hi Micah Hello, hello. It's just such a pleasure and honor to be with you, Sheila. Thank you. Yeah. Now I want to actually read your entire bio because for a point, okay. (laughs) Um, We're going to be talking to Micah about how to find a counselor and what to look for in a counselor. And I want to read you her bio from her website. Um, She is a counselor in Ohio. And this is what she says. Micah Morgan earned her master's in clinical mental health counseling from a CACREP accredited Ashland Theological Seminary. She uses cognitive behavioral trauma-informed family systems informed and attachment-based counseling techniques. She specializes in treating mood disorders, anxiety disorders, stressor-related disorders, couples issues, and family issues. She is skilled in integrating cultural issues like insight concerning the stage of life, family of origin insights, and issues stemming from the Black cultural experience into the treatment process. And then she has a number of other things that she does, Christian counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy, cultural ethnic, family therapy, marital couples, play therapy, PTSD, sexual abuse, assault, and rape relationships, school-related issues, et cetera. Okay, so that's a whole lot of stuff. But I want to unpack some of that because one of the things I'm really passionate about, Micah, is that when people are looking for a therapist, they're looking for someone who's licensed. 
So what is the difference? Can you tell us the difference between a licensed therapist and another, and just another kind of counselor? Yeah, absolutely. So really it comes down to the kind of education that you received and then whether or not you went and sat for an exam to become certified by your state's board. Um, and every state has a series of licenses that they offer. Um, so in Ohio, for example, there's the licensed professional counselor license. There's the uh, licensed social worker license. Um, there's the marriage and family therapist license. And so what happens is once you finish school and you've sat for that exam provided by your state, then you leave with a few letters at the end of your name. And so that's really what distinguishes you from another person who's in a helping field. And I do want to offer that there are folks that are in the helping field. They're providing coaching or biblical counseling. And they've had some education. They've had some certification, um, but they are not licensed by the state. And so you won't see those letters at the end of their name. For example, when you see my name online, you'll see Micah Morgan, comma, LPC, because I'm a licensed professional counselor. Right. Right. And I also do want to stress that a lot of those other helpers are very, very good at what they do. I mean, there's biblical mm -hmm. counselors who are amazing. The problem yeah. is when you're not licensed, there is not the same kind of accreditation and there's not the same kind of protections for the clients. And that's exactly. where I get nervous, especially privacy protections. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that as a board certified or licensed counselor, that's really important for me to hold um, to those regulations, right? So I've got ethics that I need to um, adhere to. There's HIPAA that I need to adhere to because I hold this license. And so it really does keep my clients safe as well. Um, but it also lets them know if they see the letters at the end of my name, that I've gotten some specific training to make sure that I'm engaging in evidence-based treatment with them. Yes. And we're all about evidence-based here at Bear Marriage. You know, we just yes. did this huge survey of 20,000 women. We're trying to find which teachings actually harm. So we're looking at evidence. And, and the thing about licensed counselors is that you've looked at evidence-based therapy treatment. So it's not just that you talk about someone's problems with them. Mm -hmm. It's that you mm -hmm. actually apply some, some specific evidence-based therapies to their issues. So can you explain what some of those mean? Like you have cognitive behavioral therapy, you mentioned, what, what's that one? Yeah. So then that folks are going to see mentioned probably most often if they go online and they Google, for example, you know, counselors in Chicago, like, right. They're going online to looking to look for their counselor. So they're going to see CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy mentioned a lot. And really what that means is it's a lot to explain, but in a nutshell, we are trained in CBT to help you um, figure out what the relationship is between your core beliefs. So these are things that you begin to believe about the world over time without really realizing it's shaped by your culture. It's shaped by your family of origin. These are things you believe that are true about the world. So we, we help you kind of dig those up first. And then we help you figure out, okay, what are some automatic thoughts that you end up just kind of thinking automatically without even realizing it because you believe those things about the world. Mm -hmm. And so then we take those and we figure out, okay, so when you end up believing these or believing these things, thinking these automatic thoughts, what are the ways that you're behaving, but not really realizing it? And that's kind of showing up in your relationships. It's showing up in the way that you cope with stress. It's showing up in the way that you process anxiety. Then that's kind of the third question we answer. And then finally, 
we begin figuring out new skills to learn so that you can change how you behave when you think those automatic thoughts, which are attached to those core beliefs. It's a structured process, right? It's based on research. Um, It's actually the most research-based in terms of the most research done on this particular uh, treatment process. It's the one that's been researched the most. And so you're going to hear that mentioned on websites and in the treatment process probably most often. Yeah. So it's not when when people think of counseling, we we tend to think of, you know, lying on the couch and tell me about your mother. And (laughs) that's not really... That's not really what that's a part of it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then there's other ones. There's um, family systems therapies. Do you want to explain that one too? Yeah. So this one's actually my, my favorite um, Mm -hmm. because really what it looks at is the family of origin that you grew up in um, that we all grew up in. We fall into these kind of scripts Um, And again, it's based on this idea that most of our behavior is less conscious or less at the front of our awareness than we really think. Um, And so you begin to kind of fall into these scripts or these patterns of acting and behaving with your family that is influenced by the different members of your family as well. So you're behaving in a way, they're behaving in a way, and you're impacting each other and you're doing it in ways that you're not even really aware of. And so what happens is we grow up and we become adults And we kind of continue replaying those scripts (laughs) and not really realizing it. And so what we do in systems theory is we try to um, dig up, okay, what are those patterns? What are those ways of behaving that you learned as a really, really young child that you're still doing as an adult? What are some ways that those behaviors are creating conflict, creating anxiety in your significant relationships now? And then what are some new skills that we can learn to make that a bit healthier? So it's very relational. It's difficult to kind of wrap our heads around it because a lot of us like to think in terms of, well, I'm in control of my own emotional health, my own mental health. But really what systems theory says is that we have an interdependent relationship with one another and that we actually do affect one another's emotional and mental health. And so when we discover the ways we do that, we can learn skills to make that a healthier um, experience. That's awesome. And so this, these are just two, there's, there's other kinds of therapies, but I wanted, I wanted our listeners to hear that, that there are evidence-based therapies and a licensed counselor should be trained in certain, they're not going to be trained in everything. (laughs) So you, if you need a particular therapy, you need to go to someone who's actually trained in that therapy who can help Mm -hmm. you um, walk through this. So let's say I I get it. I get this um, question all the time, Micah, people will email me and say, I know that I need um, to talk to a counselor, but how do I find a good counselor in my area? How do I find a Christian counselor? And I usually just tell them to Google, but, but what should they be Googling? Like, what should they be, be typing in the search bar? Yeah. So it, it does begin with, you know, some, some folks. So for example, myself, I hear from a lot of clients that they're looking for counselors of color. So they may look up, um, in Google Latina counselor in, Mm -hmm. and then city name, or they might look up, you know, black counselor in and enter your city name, but it really does begin there. Right. And so then you have this huge page of, uh, counseling agencies that just gets thrown at you. Right. And so just to be honest, it really does become a hunt of click and see, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're clicking. And I think a few things to look for when you click on that agency website is, you know, take a look at the pictures of the counselors. Most times they will have pictures of the counselors who are serving there. Um, And honestly, kind of imagine yourself looking at that face every week. 
right? <laughs> like begin there. And I really do think that like, I've, I've had some clients that we've met and you could just tell, like there just wasn't that chemistry immediately. And I do like chatting with clients about the fact that I'm here to serve you, right? Like I want to make this an experience where you feel safe, where you feel comfortable. And if you feel like seeing my face every week, is not something that you look forward to. <laughs> I'm going to help you find some person that will like be a good face for you to look at every week. So it begins with a little bit of a vibe, right? See if you can like see yourself having a conversation with this person on a regular basis. But then once you begin clicking on names of these counselors, right? We talked about looking for those letters, right? Making sure that they are licensed. If that's something that you're interested in, right? If you're looking for a licensed counselor, but then they're gonna have a bio where, you know, hopefully you're reading something like what you know, what you, Sheila, read about um, from my bio, where that counselor is explaining, this is where I received my education. These are my focuses. These are the clients that I've been most successful with, the disorders that I've worked with. And then you can kind of tell, or you may even be able to read explicitly, right? If you've been feeling more anxious, that counselor may have listed, I work with clients with anxiety. Mm -hmm. If you've been feeling, you know, more, more depressed lately, check the bio to see if that's something that they have worked with. And then from there, you know, they've got contact information there on the website. Um, and it's usually pretty easy to get in touch with. What I will say is follow-up is important. I know right now with the pandemic, a lot of counseling agencies have long wait lists. So I do invite your listener, Sheila, to call back, you know, if they don't get a call immediately that first week. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about, Sheila, employee assistance programs. Um, if you're mm -hmm. listening and you're someone who is employed, a lot of uh, organizations and, and businesses, employers offer a program where they will offer you maybe four to some will even offer up to 12 free counseling sessions so that you can get well without having to necessarily pay um, most of them are free, actually, for those mm -hmm. four to 10 sessions. Uh, but I do want to say that's intended to be more solution based, so more short term to kind of right. help with like stress management. But it is helpful, right? Because you establish that therapeutic relationship, get some treatment, and you can do it without a lot of financial barriers as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how much is counseling in general? I know there's a range, but what is the range just for our listeners? Yeah, so it's it can be a wide range. So I can remember back to my internship, for example, which was, oh goodness, uh, maybe eight, six to eight years ago. And I was providing services on a sliding private pay scale. And some of our clients were paying based upon their income as little as $25 an hour, uh, 25 mm -hmm. American dollars an hour. And some of them could afford up to 60 American dollars an hour. When it comes to using your health insurance, so um, a lot of counselors are in network, so to speak, so that means your insurance company is willing to reimburse for their services. Mm -hmm. Some insurance companies will reimburse 100%. Um, some insurance companies will say, kind of like when you go to the, to the doctor, you're gonna need to pay a copay, pay along with us for this service. Yeah. In that case, I've had some of my clients pay as little as 25 American dollars for that copay, um, and then others have been as much as 85 American dollars. And so I will say also, 
folks who are getting involved in counseling for the first time may notice that their very first session costs a bit more than their next sessions. And that's because the assessment, that's that first session, is where we're spending counselors, we're spending a lot of energy, a lot of thought um, into diagnosing you and making sure we're listening for what's going on. Um, and so those cost a bit more, they're reimbursed at a higher rate. Um, but that can range from if you're paying out of pocket, some places will charge, I've seen 112 American dollars, I've seen 185 American dollars. So it can be a wide range. But yeah, again, those are things that you are entitled to know upfront. So yeah. it's not fair for us to sneak that on you. You can ask us those questions during that initial phone call. Yeah. And I just want to say, I know like a hundred dollars an hour can sound like a lot, but any counselor will tell you the thing is they spend just as much time afterwards, you know, going through their notes and thinking about homework and thinking about therapies that they're going to use next time and praying. And also there's just the there's just the weight of it. You can't do this for eight hours a day because it can be yeah. very weighty, especially with the difficult things that you're dealing with. So, <laughs> yeah. And I do appreciate you saying that because I think when folks see that price tag, right, they have questions about, okay, why does this cost so much? Um, and, you know, I, I'll just speak for myself, but I, I, deeply care for my clients. It's, it's of course, a professional relationship, but I'm in this work because I care about um, folks getting healthy and living in healthy relationship with one another. So I do spend time documenting notes and, you know, refreshing on uh, treatment techniques, making sure that I'm executing them well, um, reading through my notes and, and kind of figuring out, okay, what did I miss in this session so that I can come fresh with fresh eyes and, and having been thoughtful about my client's situation. So um, just to offer some reassurance, like counselors and therapists are not out here, you know, like taking your money and like, we really are thoughtful and careful about this work. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So now a couple of other things. Uh, there's two areas where a lot of my readers especially need help. And those things um, do need some special care. And one of them is abuse issues because not every counselor is really good at working with abuse. So I just want to put that out there that you should be careful um, and, and make sure that your counselor knows about that. And the other one is sexual issues. Sexual dynamics is an additional um, training for many people. And so not everyone is trained in that. But how do you tell Micah when you're looking at a counselor, if they're a safe person to go to, if you're in an emotionally abusive relationship or any other kind of an abusive relationship, because I know a lot of women have told me that their counselor made it worse. So how do you know if someone is a safe person, if you're in an abusive relationship? Yeah, I think, goodness, I would say the first way to know is that that counselor is not inviting or encouraging you to remain in that relationship against your will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that this, that this therapeutic relationship is not a space where you say to your counselor, I don't feel safe, I'm being abused. And instead of them working on a safety plan with you, that counselor begins to talk about how important it is to stay, you know, with your spouse, you know, that that is not a safe therapeutic relationship. First and foremost, because we as counselors are not here to impose our, our beliefs and our thoughts about what you should do. Um, but secondly, an abusive relationship is not a safe place to be. Um, and so we should not be encouraging you uh, to do that. But I think secondly, what to look for is to really listen for compassion and empathy and not blame and shaming. 
because the dynamics of an abusive relationship are so complex and they are not your fault if you are someone who has experienced or is experiencing that. And so we are committed to and should be a safe space where we're not blaming you for that, but that we're really seeking to prioritize your safety, um, both emotionally and physically. So I would say definitely looking for those two things. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, as we wrap up, um, I am just such a big proponent of, of getting counseling when you need it. And um, one of the things we're talking about this month on the blog is how not to do marriage on hard mode. So don't make it harder than it needs to be. So if you need help, go get help. So I'm wondering if you just have a story, I'm sorry to spring this on you, but do you have a, st- a success story that you can share with us, you know, without violating privacy or anything, but of a couple who did seek help for a problem and came out on the other side? Yeah, I think I, I can share just like a general pattern that I see a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So into as a quick caveat, I love couples counseling. Couples work is my absolute favorite. Um, and so when I get to do it, it really does feel like a privilege. But I often see couples come in and they are just at their wits end. They're like, we tried everything. We've like, you know, invited friends into this. I've been talking to my mother and I swore up and down, I'd never do that. And so they, they come and they sit before you and they're completely exasperated, they're exhausted. And so what I often see from there is this interchange of both members of the couple saying, here's what has gone wrong. And in joining into that conversation with them and helping them see perhaps what are some things that they haven't noticed, some things that they've been overlooking or haven't been willing to hear that the other partner has been experiencing. And that's kind of the first success story is really deeply hearing one another. And that's one of my favorite moments. Um, But then like a step three that I really love is the first time a couple learns a new skill in session and, you know, there's two weeks or three weeks between when we meet again and they come back and you can just see on their face that they're just so excited because they did the thing, right? They tried the new communication tactic. They tried to implement their cool down periods or they were, um, thinking of, okay, what are some sliding door moments that I've missed? Moments where my partner has invited me into intimacy and I was too busy or I was too distracted to really reciprocate that. And you can just see the brightness on their face of having been successful. Then step four that I often see is that there's kind of a tough several weeks, right? Where it's not the honeymoon phase anymore, where you've been in counseling for a few months and things have been going well, but you've had another huge fight, right? Um, And they come back to session and they're a little bit more dejected, a little bit more just sad about not being successful or even angry, right? But step five through the end of of counseling with these couples is reinvigorating the drive to really invest in one another, helping them understand that, you know, change is not a straight line, but it is a spiral. You're going to take a few steps forward and a few steps back and that's okay. Um, But really helping them understand that you've been successful. You've seen that you can learn new ways to love one another. Let's keep going. Let's keep learning some new skills. Um, and so I've got a couple of, co- of couples that I'm working with now that have kind of gotten beyond that step five, right? Where the skills weren't working really great and they had to kind of come back in the session and practice them, or they had to have another crucial conversation. But now we're in kind of a maintenance phase where they're able to be thoughtful about new changes that they're making. And you can see them being playful in session. It's really a beautiful process. So if you are someone who's thinking of, 
of you know couples counseling. I do want to normalize the fact that there's going to be some rough patches, right? Because it is work. You're learning new ways to be, um, but it is a beautiful process. And so, really, just want to encourage folks to give it a try. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. And this has been really informative. Um, again, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Yes, you are welcome to um, look me up. Uh, you can Google me. It's Micah Morgan, uh, comma, LPC. Uh, Columbus, Ohio is where I'm located. But you're also welcome to connect with me on Twitter at Marie. Morgan. And of course, there I am, you know, my regular self. I'm not your therapist, but I'm happy to connect uh, and would love to meet you if you decide. Awesome. To and I will put all there. those links in the podcast notes that go along with this podcast too. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I would love to look at your face every week. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Likewise. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. So interesting. I hope that gives people some pointers where mm-hmm. they can get help. Um, and now we have a reader question for those of you who are still single and wondering how to get equally yoked. As we talk about marriage in hard mode, let's talk about singleness on hard mode. Yeah, because there are lots of, I mean, uh, gosh, yeah, singleness is just kind of hard mode. Yes, <laughs> it when is. you're trying to date, sorry, dating, dating. It is. because, And this is an important thing. Because I want, think. You want to make sure that you see the red flags, that you notice the red flags, that you, I mean, it's hard enough to find someone to date, but then when you do, you've got to keep your eyes out for red flags, see if it really does work. It's difficult. Yeah. And in our Patreon group, we have a couple people who are in the the dating world right now and they've posted about what it's like. And I'm just like, I feel for all of you. Mm -hmm. I feel for all of you. That's all I'm going to say. I just... Wow. Now we do have an article on the blog on 14 ways to really get to know someone when you are using a dating platform like eHarmony or something like that. So you can go check that out. But we have a reader question that I thought that we could tackle quickly and then move on to the bigger question about boundaries when you're single. So she writes, I love your blog, although I'm single and not yet married. And I really am grateful for all the single people who listen. Oh, yeah. I think that's amazing. I'm glad that you think I'm healthy. This past year, I've finally started taking an active role in trying to find a spouse as hard as it's been with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as many have done, I've turned to dating apps. And I recently connected with a guy who seems almost perfect. We're both total nerds. He's a Christian seeking a Christian. The only problem is he believes sex is okay as long as it's in a committed relationship. He, like so many other young Christians, grew up on books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Purity Culture and has seen the destruction that turning uh, physical purity into an idol has caused in many of his friends' marriages and sex lives. I, however, grew up in a single-parent home, so I have experienced the destruction and pain that sex before marriage can bring. We both agree that physical intimacy should not outpace emotional and spiritual intimacy. I suppose I just want to know some common-sense boundaries to put up. Yeah. And if I, you don't want to have sex, don't have sex. Yeah, and, and she also <laughs> says in the email, we, we read a truncated version of the email, obviously, but she also said that he says that he's perfectly happy, like he's not going to push her boundaries on that. Yeah. So I think this is one of those things where like if you disagree on something, but you're able to have a healthy relationship and you mm-hmm. just, and you, you have a partner who's not pushing you past what you're comfortable with, I don't really see that as too much of a red flag, to be completely honest. No, I think that's fine. You just yeah. see things differently, but if but he's if abiding he's, by your boundaries, that's, that's exactly thing. it. And if, if you're dating someone who is pushing your boundaries, that is a red flag. Yep. Yep. And if this is someone who said sex isn't a big deal, that's, that's kind of different. But like he's saying, there's a lot of different mm-hmm. perspectives and he's like, Hey, here's my personal thoughts. But if you believe this way, that's okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, sounds great. That's respectful. I, I hope that, I hope that relationship works out. But we have, as we've been writing our mother daughter book over the last few months, we've been looking back at some advice that was given to teen girls about dating. Mm-hmm. And you came across an article that 
that we thought we might talk about because we kind of had a funny conversation about this in the living room and we're like, this really needs to go on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is, and this is, this is what I mean by sometimes we make things a lot more difficult than they need to be. Yes. Oh my word. Okay. So I'm reading through these old Brio articles because. And Brio magazine was a focus on the family publication. Yes. And if we are explaining this to you, never heard it, you probably were not born within the years of 19, what, 84 (laughs) to 96 or something. Yeah. But anyway, Brio Magazine was this huge magazine that Brio, that Focus on the Family put out for teen girls ages like 12 to like 20. They had Brio and Brio and Beyond for the Olders. Anyway, I found this gem of an article mm-hmm. about God's wardrobe for successful dating. And it's all in the Wayback Machine because it's all on the website. And so we'll have the link to it in the mm-hmm. podcast description notes if you'd like to go read the whole thing. I'm going to just summarize it right now. Okay, ready? Okay. So this guy... And this girl, Michael and Stacy, dated in high school, very much an item. He thought they were going to get married one day, but never, they, they didn't even consider attending the same college. Um, he said that they wanted to explore life, meet other people, date others, but then he always assumed that in the end they'd become Mr. and Mrs. Michael, right? Okay. So they go to separate ways. Uh, they have a great time. They call on the phone every couple of months mm-hmm. um, for the next couple of years, and then this happens. Ready? And he doesn't date anyone in the meantime. And he doesn't date anyone else in the meantime because he figures, well, he's just going to end up with Stacy. Right. Okay. Okay. Throughout my college years, I kept in touch with Stacy by calling her every few months. Mm -hmm. Our relationship wasn't serious, but I wanted to keep things going because I still thought she was the one. And then she calls. Hey, can I talk to you? She asked. Sure. What's going on? Well, I wanted you to be the first to know. Know what? That I'm engaged. (laughs) Engaged? You've got to be kidding me. I was shocked. How did that happen? Well, Mark and I met in a communication class last spring and things moved pretty fast. Now we're getting married. And then he says, I'm happy for you, Stacy. I paused. So are you calling me to find out how I feel about your getting engaged? Well, I'm not exactly sure why I'm calling you. To be totally honest, he says, I'm shocked. I really thought we'd get married someday. And then he writes this. For the longest time, I heard total silence on the phone line. I knew what she was thinking. Great. Now I have two guys asking me to get married. I didn't expect this, she whispered. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm going to stick with this guy, she said. What was left to say except goodbye, he writes. When I returned the phone to its cradle, waves of devastation swept over me. I felt worthless, like a sack of trash tossed overboard. Her rejection was a real kick in the teeth. Mm -hmm. So let's just paint this picture. Guy and a girl date in grade 12. Mm -hmm. They just have a, a normal kind of high school relationship. He doesn't even try to go to the same college as her. Right. First of all. Like, he makes it very clear here. That wasn't even, didn't cross his mind once. Right. This is the girl he's gonna marry, and he's good with her just going off and dating other guys. It means he gets to go off and meet other girls. Right. So then he gets there, and he's like, I don't really want to meet other girls. I've got Stacy in my back pocket here. Yeah. But he only calls her every couple of months mm-hmm. after not even trying to go to the same college as her. And then... She gets engaged after, like, you know, maybe, like, a year or two, and he says, well, I thought we were going to get married. hmm And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, hello, we never talked about this. No. 
We never. And this guy is now happily married to a different woman, and they yeah. wrote this article together. But, but, what, but his conclusion and his advice is very problematic. Yes. So he says this, As horrible as I felt that day, I think it would have been far worse if I hadn't maintained emotional boundaries in the dating relationship. You see, I'd never whispered to Stacy the three simple words, I love you. Some of you may be thinking that if I'd said the words, maybe Stacy would have known how I felt about her. Yeah. Y- yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and wouldn't have dated someone else. I disagree. Stacy knew what I thought of her. But did she? You never said it. Well, you never also, said it. I'm sorry. If you're a girl and you're dating this guy that you really like and he, and, and anyway, she goes in the later thing to say they even had conversation about how he didn't want to say that he loved her because he didn't want to cause false intimacy, you yeah. know, and then he says that like the, the he doesn't even like think that people should say I love you until after you're engaged and all these different things. And I'm just like, if you're a girl who's dating a guy mm-hmm. who says... I don't want to tell you I love you because I don't want to create any false intimacy. I don't want to go to the same college you because I think it's good if we both meet other people. And then he only calls you like maybe a couple times a year. Would you assume that you're basically engaged? How on <laughs> earth would you think that he's going to marry you? Yeah. How, how do you, why do you assume she knows how you feel? Like, and, and, and the funny thing is he thinks he knows exactly what she's thinking. Multiple times he says, I knew what she was thinking. You know? No, Stacy knew what I thought about her. Like he uses those mm-hmm. kinds of languages. How does he know that? Mm-hmm. Everything that he did was saying, this was fun, but I'm done. Right. Everything that he did. Yeah. Like, if you move to a different college, and when you get to college, you realize, I don't really want anyone but Stacy. What you do is you call up your girlfriend and say, I don't want anyone but you. Mm-hmm. And you say, you know what? I am in love with you, and I'd like for this to become a lot more serious. Yeah. That's what you say. Yeah. Um, but instead, what he did is he just talked talk to her a couple times a year, kind of keeping her in as an option in his back pocket. And then when mm-hmm. she met another guy who prioritized her and told her that he loved her and asked her to marry him, she's all thrilled, and she has this guy who she probably at this point thinks, oh, we're just great friends, and how lovely is it that I can be good friends with my ex, say... Yeah. But, but but weren't you going to marry me? Yeah. That's and it's just like, bizarre. What? And this whole idea that you've you've maintained emotional boundaries because you never said I love you. They hadn't maintained emotional boundaries. That's what I this find so funny. This guy is devastated. The that- only boundary that they didn't maintain was emotional. Yeah. Like they had physical like ta- like travel boundaries. They had yes. to have different schools. He expected to date other people. The only boundary that he mm-hmm. hadn't actually maintained was the emotional one. Yeah. And you know, this is one of the reasons why I got rid of the whole I kiss dating goodbye thing. Because when you were 13, I made you read that book. I'm sorry about that, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I loved that book when I was 13. I know. And, and we thought this was a great idea. You know, you don't date until you're older. You're, you're in the age range where you could get married. You're in the life space where you could get married. And so you date in order to find someone to marry. And, and this is all very fine and dandy, except, and this way you avoid all this heartache. But what I saw was over and over again, you and Katie were still going through heartache. Mm-hmm. You just weren't dating anyone and and so it was actually easier for them to break your heart because they had never they were stringing you along yeah and i think and again this guy who wrote this article he's very happily married today it seems so mm-hmm. we're happy for him really happy for him yeah found a woman who he can say i love you too and you know they're, they're yeah. they seem quite happy yeah but it's just this mentality that as long as you don't say the words your heart will be protected Mm-hmm. And so no one can ever hurt you. Mm-hmm. Just means that in essence, you're once again, you're stringing people along. And I will say this, as a woman in, who was, who did have kind of weird relationships in this culture, mm-hmm. it is so, I mean, I actually want to say that it is objectifying of women. 
Mm-hmm. Because this is a guy who felt entitled to marry a woman someday who he put no effort into a relationship with. Yeah. And, and I, I, I know this is going to sound very harsh, but to me, reading this sounds like an incel subreddit kind of mentality where it's like, I like her. She's good for me. Therefore, she is mine regardless of how I treat her. Yeah. It's like yeah. nothing in how this man treated this woman mm-hmm. says relationship. Yeah. Past high school. Yeah. Nothing. But years later, he still thought they were going to end up together. And that is a very entitled and objectifying view of women, mm-hmm. which a lot of men have. Mm-hmm. You know, where I deserve to be able to keep you in my back pocket. I'm going to keep you on this fishing line. You know, just like that's that's what we always mm-hmm. say. It's like you're just stringing him along. Stringing and him and along. I knew a lot of guys like that, like it, when I was in university mm-hmm. and when you guys were at that age who, well, I don't want to date anyone while I'm in med school or I don't want to yeah. date anyone while I'm in law school or I don't want to date anyone while I'm in my education because it focused on my education but I want you in my back pocket exactly and at some point these young women needed to decide I'm worth more than that yeah because he wasn't even promising that once he was done med school and I'm not talking about Keith by the way I'm talking about my boyfriend before him but anyway (laughs) (laughs) Keith and I got married in med school that wasn't an issue but you know that idea that that I can't I can't commit to anything right now because this is more important well then how do you know that you're ever going to be number yeah. one important and that's thing. that's exactly it is like if you're dating someone or if you're kind of talking to someone who's stringing you along and who says that he wants to marry you someday or you know says that he sees you as the person for him but he's not actually doing anything to prove that to you you do not need to stick around for that mm-hmm. guy because even if you do end up marrying him how do you know you're going to be his priority like at some point the whole dating process is supposed to be to show you what kind of relationship you're stepping into and you do not want to step into a relationship where a man is unwilling to take any emotional risk to himself mm-hmm. in order to offer you any support or any protection yeah. and this is where direct communication comes in so we yeah. had a couple of we had a couple of posts last month on direct communication and dating and on very very unhealthy relationships, friendation, what do we call them? Friendationships, yeah. where you feel like you're being strung along, where you're just friends, but you're sort of in a relationship. And we will put some links to those um, in the podcast notes, including one about Elizabeth and Jim Elliott's relationship, where she was really strung along for five years. And that was yeah. very problematic. Okay, as we wind up this podcast for this week, I want to read one more review for The Great Sex Rescue that came Sounds in. Sounds great. Okay, a woman says, I have loved Sheila's books, blog, and podcast for a long time. I've taken a couple of the courses and have spent a lot of time discussing these things with my husband. We have a great marriage and I wasn't sure if we actually needed this book, so I waited a while to get it. Boy, am I glad I finally bought it. This brought clarity to some teachings that have always rubbed me the wrong way, but I wasn't sure why. It's created even better discussion between my husband and me as we both detox from so many of these yucky evangelical extras our church culture likes to throw around. Believe me, this book isn't a deviation from scripture. It's returning to the truth and looking at what God says as a whole, not just focusing on single verses taken out of context. It gives me hope and a foundation to start teaching our young daughter in a way that is radically different than what I learned. The last couple chapters brought on the most tears as the authors describe how this new knowledge is changing how they raise their own children. May God go before us and give us strength to be different, to be radical, to call the church to do better. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and we just want to say, you know, we know a lot of you listen to this podcast and read the blog and you feel like you've gotten so much information. And we do, (laughs) we put, I think we put so much content out there for free and we're glad to do it because we want people to have this information whether or not 
you buy our books or anything. We want to make it readily accessible. But we do need to tell you that when you buy our book, it actually helps change the culture even more. Because we've been ignored by Christian media. We've been blacklisted by pretty much all the big name I can't we'll put it this way I can't think of any big name evangelical on in like kind of the SBC kind of crowd yeah like in the the marriage crowd marriage crowd crowd who hasn't blacklisted yeah so we've been blacklisted by everybody because we're calling out names and so when you buy the book you show people hey there's an audience for this hey this matters hey you need to start listening to us yeah. <laughs> um so it really does affect us and when you buy it for a pastor a counselor it can it can help change the whole conversation in your church community there is a free video study that goes along with it i will put a link to that in the podcast notes but together we can change the evangelical conversation about sex and marriage we can find freedom we can be equally yoked and that is our prayer for you so thank you for joining us and we will see you again next week on Bye. Fair marriage bye-bye